We're looking at the series called See, which basically John, throughout the entirety of his book, is that he wants us to get a glimpse and a picture of who Jesus is. And the way that he's done that throughout his gospel is to give us pictures and glimpses of this person Jesus so that we might believe. You see, John knows that we need to catch glimpses of the person and work of Jesus to to actually believe in him. Well, tonight we're going to look at a very important text in this gospel. Let me set it up a little bit. The first 12 chapters of the book of John are about Jesus' public ministry. He's out and about in the different towns and around Judea and Galilee, and he's teaching and he's speaking, he's performing miracles. And this section of Scripture, it all ends. It all ends. He's not going public anymore. The next uh, eight verses of the next eight chapters of this book will be Jesus secluding himself to be around his disciples and his disciples only. His public ministry is ending here. And I don't know what your swan song would be, right? What would be the last thing that you would say to the public if you were retreating away? I don't know what it would be for you, but I want you to hear tonight what Jesus has to say to us. So a very important and poignant text. Hey, y'all listen. When you have three-year-old twins like I do, you get a real uh, good glimpse of knowing what animals do and what animals say. You follow me? You know what I mean? So um, if you ask my twin girls, uh, what do birds do? They will say, fly. I asked them the day, I said, what does a frog do? And Evangeline said, well, they hop. And I said, and you know what else? Pigs, they swim, right? And they said, no, pigs do not swim, they walk. That, you know, anyway, you get the point, right? It's a fun little exercise that, uh, you know, you get, to get to learn what the animals are doing and whatnot. So in case you ever forget, come to my house. Now, here's the deal. Why do birds fly? I mean, I don't mean physically, you know, their wings or their bones are hollow or whatever. Whoever's the ornithologist in our group, I don't know why they fly. They just do. Because that's what birds do. They fly, right? And why do frogs hop? Because that's what frogs do. They hop. And why do, you know, fish swim? Because, well, that's what fish do. It's who they are. Now, when we come to our text tonight, it tells us what is natural, what comes natural for human beings. And I don't know if you saw it, but it's actually quite sobering. And here it is. What is natural for human beings is to unbelieve. Is to not believe. And that is profound. That is profound because... Among all the different things that make humans beautiful and broken, what they naturally do is they do not believe. They do not believe naturally that God exists and that He loves them. What is natural, in other words, is not belief, but unbelief. And we read tonight of religious leaders that Jesus had come to that had rejected Him. In other words, they were non-believing, that their hearts were turned away from God. They did not believe because that is who they were. And I want to suggest to you tonight that this text not only addresses them in their unbelief, but it also addresses us. It also addresses us, not only Christians who know and walk with Jesus in our seasons of unbelief, but it actually is going to address those of us who are curious, who are questioning. And regardless of where you're at along the belief and unbelief spectrum, Jesus has a word to say to us tonight, and that is this, that all of us, apart from God's grace, have hearts turned away 
from God. That nobody believes in Him in and of themselves. And so, the real grace of the passage tonight is to see how Jesus comes and mends our unbelief. We're going to see how He comes to give and to bring and to capture and to secure belief in Him in us. So tonight we're going to look at that underneath three headings. The first of them we're going to see is this, is that first of all, Jesus comes. And that's huge, y'all. He comes. But secondly, He comes all the way in to the heart. He comes, He comes to the heart. And then lastly, we're going to take a look that He comes to the cross. So there they are. There's our three headings for tonight. And I hope that we'll try to be clear and learn a little something along the way. But one of the constant messages as we look at this idea of Jesus coming... I'm looking at verses 44 and 45 and then 49 and 50. And John tells us over and over again that God in His grace comes to us. You might remember John chapter 1, right? The Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. That God in the person of Jesus has actually come to us. He doesn't ask us to go to Him, but rather He comes to us. In His grace and kindness, He lowers Himself and enters our world. Let's remember the story just a minute to have our hearts captured by the real beauty of Jesus coming to us. You might remember the story. It goes like this. God makes a world. He makes it perfect. And He makes man and woman to live in that world in perfect harmony with Himself. And then what happens? What happens? It gets all screwed up royally. Who is responsible for the mess? Well, it's not God. It's man. You see, mankind, we are the ones who have made a mess of our world. And this royal mess-making comes with real consequences, too. Romans 5 tells us that Adam, because he sinned, that all of us are actually implicated, that we're guilty because of what he has done. And when he decided that autonomy... That him being his own ruler, that's what autonomy means. It's a law unto oneself. That he would be king. When Adam decided that they would do that, that they would be the boss, that that would be a better route, it brought death, not only to him, but because how he was our representative, to us as well. Paul will tell us, and we'll look at this verse many times tonight, therefore that is one trespass led to condemnation for all men. But the good news is what? God doesn't leave us there, right? He tells us here in verses 44 and 45. Did you see it there? It says that Jesus was sent to us. And why does He have to be sent? Well, simple. Because there's no other way that we could ever be saved. None of us left to our own wants God. Our sin traps us, as it were, from wanting God. And in so doing, Jesus is telling us, y'all, about the Father's heart. In other words, what does the Father make of our sin? Has it caused Him to turn His heart ultimately away from us? And Jesus says, no, He has come to tell about eternal life. Y'all, John wants to show us that Jesus aims to mend our unbelief, not by letting us wait over in a corner, for us to get our act together and for us to find our way back to God. 
but that God in His mercy does what? He goes out on a rescue mission and He comes to every single one of us because He's sensitive, He's kind, and He's understanding of hearts that don't seek Him. Let me illustrate it this way. I'm reminded of a story my friend tells. He was staying at the house of this couple where the father and the mother had several teenage children. And at one point, one of the teenage boys got into an argument with the father. And he was yelling at his dad. And the dad was remaining calm. And he finally did, like most teenagers do at some point. He stormed off and ran to his room, shut the door very loudly so that it echoed throughout the house. And my friend said he observed something amazing. That the father, after the son went away, went to the door of the child and stood there with his nose on the door. And my friend asked him, why did you do that? What are you doing? And he said, I want my boy to know that I am more committed to him than he is to me. And I want the very first thing to see when he opens that door is my face that I'm still here and that I still love him. In the very same way, Jesus is coming to us to secure our belief Because He knows that if He were to wait for us to come to Him, we would never come. So what does this mean tonight for you? I don't know where you're at. I don't know of what sort of mess you have made of your life. And listen, it is easy to believe in the face of our junk, our brokenness, our sin, to think that God has turned away from us and wants nothing to do with us. But the picture of Jesus reminds us that that is not so. You see, I don't know how many guys or girls you've slept with in your life. I really don't. In one sense, I don't, it doesn't bother. I mean, it does, I mean, it's troubling, but it doesn't bother me in the sense that I know that there's grace for you. I don't know what sort of circumstances your life is like in the sense of substance abuse and, and the way that you use your tongue and the way that you gossip about your friends and how you hate your roommates and all of your junk, all of your... Listen... This text tells us that God has sent the Son to come after us, to restore a right belief that God loves us. That is one of the hugest things that you can take away from this text. All of these and many more can't leave you you and me in the posture of not believing because God still cares for us. We think we've exhausted His grace. And do you see that John is telling us that He has come? When we wouldn't come to Him, when we didn't even want Him, this same Jesus is with us today, right here in this Word that we read. But y'all, John tells us more. He gets more specific and is more intentional. John not only tells us that that Christ has come, but that He has come to the very source of, of our unbelief to deal with it there. That's what I mean when I say He comes to the heart, to the very heart of our unbelief. Take a look with me in these first verses here. Did you see what was going on? John tells us that Jesus did many miracles and people didn't believe in Him even though the miracles were performed. That's what verse 37 tells us. Though He had done so many signs before them and still did not believe in Him. So there it is. They, they, they wanted to see signs. He did them, 
and yet they didn't believe. And this is insightful for this, for this very reason. It tells us that miraculous signs in the end and by themselves aren't the only thing needed to believe in Jesus. Let me say that again. That miraculous signs by themselves are not the only thing required to bring about belief in Jesus. Right? How many of y'all might be the people that say, you know, I'm a little skeptical, I'm sort of a cynical person, and if, if God would just come and do something miraculous, then I would believe. Well, you would find your voice with people in this text, and here's the answer to that. Actually, you wouldn't. Because the signs themselves are always meant to point to something greater. And over and over again, we see the same thought being fleshed out over and over again. A miracle was done, and people still didn't believe. And here's the principle. That belief in the biblical sense is deeper, y'all, is deeper than the intellect and the mind. That belief is deeper than what we conceive and grasp with our mind. That's the first thing I want you to see. Secondly, I want you to see this as well. We see, too, that John cites this Old Testament prophet in Isaiah here in verse 38. He is quoting from Isaiah 53 a passage that tells us about the mighty saving act of God in the one who would come to die for God's people. The thing is, this question is asked, who has believed? You see it right there. Who believed? Who would believe in the saving act of God? And the answer is, is, is implicitly negative. Nobody. Nobody believed. Nobody believed that God would save His people in this way. That's what leads Paul to write in the book of Romans in chapter 3, verse 11, that no one believes. There is nobody righteous, that nobody understands. And again, John cites right here in verse 40, he cites again Isaiah chapter 6, and he tells us why. Did you see it? He, God, has blinded their eyes. This was a word from God to Isaiah many, many centuries ago saying this. Here's his mission statement. Ready? Isaiah, I'm calling you. I want you to go tell people about my mercy and grace. But here's the thing. They're not going to believe you because I've hardened their hearts. And so the reason that they're going to do that is because I want to make my name great. And I want, to, I want them to know that my saving activity is always on the principle of grace. That's what's getting fleshed out here. And, that's, and, and John is taking that and he's saying, this is why this has happened. Now, y'all, this is what I want you to see. I want you to see then, belief is not merely, it cannot be merely intellectual. That miracles cannot grant us belief, but also we ourselves cannot grant belief. Let me say that again, just let that sink in. That belief is not something that you yourself can generate. Some of y'all are going, this is mind-blowing. What in the world is this guy talking about? We've got to go deeper still. I want to make an illustration, though. Listen. This means there are a ton of questions that this text is telling us about the nature of belief and unbelief. And there is no way that I can get into all of it tonight. So if you have questions at the end of this time tonight, know that I will take you to lunch and we can talk about them. We can have a follow-up, a 2.0, as it were, okay? And we'll talk about this stuff. That's why I'm here. I'm around. I'm around to help pastor you in these things. But I want you to have three takeaways from this. And the first is this, that belief in God is a matter of the heart. 
Belief in God is a matter of the heart. More specifically, it is a matter of the volition or the will. That is, it's what we want or don't want. Therefore, in the Bible, belief and unbelief always have a moral component to it. I need for you to hang with me on this. It's not going to make sense. I'm trying to get you to see that we... We don't believe in something only because we don't have enough facts. That we believe in God because we actually want to or we don't want to. Think about it like this. I love a man named Dr. Thomas Nagel. He's a philosopher up in New York somewhere. He's still living and he himself is an atheist. Okay, So he does not believe in God or a God at all. But I profoundly respect the intellectual integrity of this man in these words that I'm about to speak to you. He says this, listen to this. He says, when talking about his unbelief and his non-belief in God, he says this, I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Nagel goes on to say that he fears the possibility of God. Why? And I love this honesty. Listen to what he says. He says that he has a cosmic authority problem. What does this mean? It means that he himself wants to be king. That he himself wants to be the one that says how things are. How reality is dictated is by him. And so he hopes, I'm about to say he hopes to God that there is no God. But he (laughs) hopes that there is no God. He wants to be the one who dictates what is and what isn't. And this illustrates, therefore, the real root of belief. I prefer, I want not to believe in God. That there is this wanting or willing component to belief and unbelief. And this brings me to my second takeaway. Not only is unbelief a matter of the heart, I really want you to perk up here. It is preferred, in other words, the heart chooses it, because the individual cannot deal or stand the implications of a God existing. We cannot stand it. Here's why. Ready? Because if He exists as holy and righteous, and I stand before Him, what does that make of me? That makes me guilty. That makes me one who stands before Him, as it were, with all of my train of, if I'm honest, my conscience convicts me that I have not lived a perfect life. In short, all of us have a cosmic authority problem because if God exists, that tells me I'm in trouble. And, and, if that's the case, if that's the case, I can't stand it. And what happens is, is that therefore I don't want God to believe and so I suppress or I deny the reality of Him. Now, some of y'all I'm, about to, I'm losing here, so I'm going to try to bring you back with an illustration. I want you to think of this. How many of y'all know who Steve Jobs is? Or most people? Okay, good. Founder, creator of, um, of Apple. Months before he died from a uh, cancer that took his life, he died from a pancreatic uh, cancer, um, His response to the news that he had cancer that eventually took his life, his biographer, a guy by the name of Walter Isaacson, captured. And Isaacson said this uh, about Jobs and why he didn't seek the life-saving surgery that he could have had. And I quote from Isaacson here. He says, I think that he kind of felt like 
that if you ignore something, if you don't want something to exist, you can magically think it away. And so he, Jobs, could not bear the news, so he, one, denied the severity of the problem, and then, two, that blocked him from being able to seek the remedy. Here's what I'm trying to see. I'll show you this, is that apart from the saving grace of Jesus, we are all like this. We all know that God exists, but we deny it. And I love this illustration. It's like we've walked into the room with the lights are on. We've turned off the switch and we're living in a, in a self-imposed darkness and denying that light even exists. That's what the human heart does apart from the grace of Jesus. And I want you to hold on the rails because we've got to take one more step down. We've got to go one more step down. And here it is. The last takeaway. Now get this. This gets in some of the most sobering parts of all of Scripture with what I'm about to read. We see that it is actually God the one that is hardening hearts and blinding eyes so that they cannot believe. That is what's happening in this verse. I do not want to stand up here and tell you that because it's so hard to actually see in the Scriptures. But we believe that God gives us all of Scripture to instruct us and to teach us. And here's what I want you to see. We have to remember that God is obligated to save no one. All of us are guilty, every single one of us, and God is righteous in all of His judgments. And that being said, it isn't as though God is taking someone who sort of believed in Him and then messed with his heart in such a way that it turned him away from God. No. When everyone fell in Adam, when, when Adam's sin was given to us, all of us were guilty. All of us. And what that means then is that when God saves anybody, it is all by sheer mercy. It is all by His sheer kindness. I like to think of it like this. A friend of mine gives me this illustration and I... It, I think it's pretty good. If I were to ask, how many of y'all like to garden? Anybody? One person? Mary Elizabeth. All right. Um, if any of you grow up around a garden or a farm, I'll just ask you this. Okay, you like it. Okay, here we go. Farm. Okay, here we go. If I were to ask you, what do you do to get weeds to grow? You don't do a thing. You don't do a thing. And for our purposes, I want you to think of God as the gardener, as God as the gardener, and Him just letting weeds grow. The image there is, is that if God wants, that one of the harshest judgments, one of the firmest judgments that God can ever give to anybody for all their unbelief, is to literally do nothing. Is to leave us. Is to leave us. And you might say, What? What are, are you smoking crack, dude? That is such bull. And I just want to say, you may think that, but it says it right here. It's sobering. And it leaves us asking, well then, guess what? If that's the case, then who? Who in the world and how in the world can anybody be saved. Are any of you thinking that? And here's the point. 
That's exactly where you need to be. Because the glory of God that we're about to see is that salvation has nothing to do with you. You cannot save yourself. You cannot believe. God must grant you belief. He must come into the darkness, as it were, and cut the lights on. He must do that. And do you know that that's what we're going to go next? And we're going to see it there right here, right now. Did you see it? That God says about Jesus, that Jesus says about Himself, that I have come as light. What does light do? It enters into the darkness and it dissipates it. It causes it to go away. And so how will anybody be saved if God turns the lights on? And here's the deal. If you and I want to be saved, it is because God has given you that desire in the first place. You see, here's the thing. People hear this text and they think, well, what about that person that wants to be saved? And God says, nope, sorry, you're out. You can't be saved. Do you know how many people are in that class or in that set? This many people. Zero. Zilch. Because God Himself gives us the actual desire to want to seek Him. This leads the prophet Jonah to say this, that salvation from beginning to end is of the Lord. And that's what this text is telling us. He says this in verse 47, If anyone hears my voice, if anyone hears my words, if anyone hears them, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That Christ has actually come. And how does He do this? How does He expose I mean, come in and blast the darkness away with light? He comes on, to, on the cross. That is what this citation back up in verse 38 is all about. Isaiah 53 points to the who would come and who would bleed and die for us. That He would take, as it were, are you ready? He would take the very judgment that God levels against us for Himself. The judgment that you and I, that we deserve. Christ takes it for us. And what that means is, is that if the judgment is leveled against Christ, what do you think is left for you and me? Nothing. Only the welcome of God. Only His open arms bringing us in. That's the only thing that's left for us. This is profoundly good news. How many of y'all know what dregs are? You ever heard the word of dregs? It's like the sediment at the bottom of your French press coffee. Or if you drink wine, it's that sediment at the bottom of, of the bottle of wine. And, and here's the picture that we get in the Scriptures that Jesus takes up the cup of God's righteous judgment against our sin. He places it to its lips and He guzzles it down, all the way down to the dregs for you and me. Remember earlier when I said that we all have a knowledge of God, but we suppress it because it implicates us. Y'all, there are two ways to deal with that guilt. Two ways. One of us is to remove the standard and say that God doesn't exist. But can I offer up another way out? Let the standard remain. Keep it there. And see Jesus. See Him. 
see Him being the one. See Him being the one that knows how to deal with all of our guilt and all of our shame, such that when it's dealt with, we have an acceptance with the Father Himself. Y'all, I, I get worked up about this because it's so dadgum important. And here's what I want you to see tonight. There are some of you here tonight. There are some of you here tonight looking at what I'm saying, and you're saying, yeah, right. No way. I don't believe it. And can I just tell you, please, please, please don't remain there. Look to Jesus. Look to Him. Because, you see, He, he is the measuring line. What you do with Him matters forever. It matters forever. And, and the promise is that this text says, is that I, Jesus says, I'm not going to be the one that judges you. That my words will rise up against you. The message spoken about me will be the thing that, that judges you. And here's what you... I don't want you hearing my voice for all eternity saying there was another way. I don't want you to hear my voice saying for all eternity, you don't have to be here. I'm begging you tonight, if you don't know Jesus, to look to Him and believe. To choose in that belief and to look to Him. Because there's everlasting life. There is delight. There are the Father's smiles that welcome you in on offer in this very room tonight. That is amazing news for our souls tonight. And it challenges even the best of us, those of us that look to Him and trust of Him, to be reminded of the sheer mercy that God gives us. In closing, Jesus on the cross experienced and took the judgment that we rightly deserve. He knew the darkness, the utter darkness of being cast away from the Father so that you and me might have the light of His presence forever. Do you see this tonight? Do you see it? I urge you, please, please come to Him and come tell me if so. I would love to talk with you about it. Jesus has come. He has come to blast away our unbelief. And He does so by putting on display the amazing love of God in the death for us. See it. Believe it. Let me say this last thing. Do you know who Jesus dies for? It's not believers. It's unbelievers. Everybody starts out from the posture of not believing in Him. He must come. He must come and rescue Perhaps He's doing that tonight for you. Will you pray with me?